Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkhan, with yet another exciting interview. If you want to know more about me, you can feel free to take a look at rajbalkhan.com. But more important than me is who I'm talking with today, um, Dr. Caleb Simmons, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Arizona, and one of the editors of this very exciting book, Nine Nights of the Goddess, about the Navaratri Festival in South Asia. So, um, Caleb, why don't you say hello to our audience and tell a little bit about yourself and your background. Hello, and uh, thanks for having me, Raj. Uh, in my background, I mean, I have a PhD in religious studies, and as you said, I'm at the University of Arizona. Uh, my training was primarily in uh, medieval and colonial Hinduism with a focus on the goddess, which of course is, leads us directly to um, editing this volume. Yeah, that's about me. <laughs> right, short and sweet and to the yeah. point. I actually, you know, um, for the audience's sake, I actually collaborated with Caleb to do the chapter to the book. And so I've been in touch with him since I met him in about 2011 at uh, an American Academy of Religion conference. And um, so if we get rather uh, silly uh, on this call, you'll know why. <laughs> yeah, it's um, actually the, um, the panel we met in was one that uh, was related to this book, uh, Uta Huskin, who's in the volume and had arranged the working group. It's like, it was actually her panel uh, titled The Goddess and the King, where we met. Right. I mean, it was called The Goddess and the King. This was 2011. This was the first year that I entered my PhD program. And now, uh, X years later, I, I recently published a, my, my thesis called The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth. Um, and The Goddess and the King, I believe, was a title that, that you used at one point. Was it not? I did, yeah. My, uh, my PhD dissertation was also named The Goddess and the King. So it was a pretty popular... Um, title for for theses, dissertations, and panels. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think in all fairness, um, it came to Ute and the collaborative group and myself probably after Caleb. He was probably the real <laughs> goddess in the game. <laughs> yeah, having said that, that's probably a good uh, point of entry in terms of well, the goddess and the king. What is what is this title, or what what do these themes have to do with this exciting publication? Tell us tell us about this work. All right, well, I, can, I mean, I can tell you from my perspective um, how those two terms relate to, to this book because it's, I mean, it's directly related to, to my work and, as I know, uh, also to yours, even though we take pretty radically different approaches. But, you know, anyone who's interested in uh, Hindu goddess traditions, even if you're interested in domestic ritual um, or public ritual, eventually uh, when you dig into the goddess tradition, eventually you're going to come across something related to um, Indian kingdoms, because the goddess was such an important aspect of that. So people who are interested in uh, Indian history or in goddess traditions or in Hinduism more broadly wind up having some sort of convergence of these two terms uh, in their work where uh, kings are interested in the goddess because the goddess is interested in kings. So for my dissertation, uh, I was studying the, the um, colonial kingdom of Mysore in South India and looking at the goddess Chamundeshwari and how the kings of Mysore, the warriors, related back to, to that goddess as a way of uh, fashioning their, their kingdom. And so that led me, of course, to, to panels like the one that Uta Huskin had arranged at uh, AAR, in which they were all looking at goddesses and kings in different manners. And 
you know, fortunate uh, for you know both myself and for for you, Raj, is that Uta uh, was so nice to invite us to a workshop on uh, the Navratri festival, primarily focused on goddesses and kings, which then grew uh, enormously over a few years and eventually led to to this book, Nine Nights of the Goddess. Yeah, it's been it's been quite the journey. Um, there's so much to say, but I really want to ask more than I want to say in this interview. For those who may not have looked at the book yet, may be interested in it, um, Nine Nights of the Goddess. It's obviously about this this festival, this Nine Night Festival in the autumn. But what is it that's unique or interesting or fascinating that this book does that hasn't been done before? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and one that I I think is what makes it pretty important is, you know, it's it's a look at this festival Navaratri from all over South Asia, India, uh, and Nepal. Really, is the are the two foci. And it does something that any other book that I know of hasn't done. A lot of books have tried to sort of give a, a comprehensive history of like the textual background of Navratri or an in-depth case study of, of one celebration. But with this book, what we really tried to do is to uh, give a short introduction that gives a little bit of the textual background, a little bit of the, the mythological background of the of the festival, but really to to dive into the this festival, which is by far, in, in my understanding, the most ubiquitous within the South Asian cultures, and just give a lot of different case studies that look at how this festival has been celebrated, you know, whether it's in uh, courts, whether it's in political life, whether it's in homes, by males, by females, by both, by Brahmins, by non-Brahmins, just giving a, a reflecting sort of the variety that this festival actually has within the the South Asian context and letting people just sort of enjoy having all these different case studies. So the 30,000 foot view of this book is it that it showcases various ethnographic case studies that dig into the vibrant life of this festival. Would you agree? Yeah. And then of course we've got some, some essays like yours that deal more with textual traditions. Uh, and then like mine, which is a, a more historical understanding of how um, lineage fits into to the colonial setting. But then we definitely do have those ethnographic um, uh, chapters in there. So it, it really, it's it's meant to give sort of the di- diversity in its broadest sense, both on methodology, uh, perspectives, because it's, you know, this is not just a, a North American publication, but there's a lot of scholars from Europe who also were involved. And all of us taking different methods, different theories to sort of look, use that as a lens to look at this uh, festival, which I think then produces something that's actually quite phenomenal uh, in, it, in its breadth and in its depth at the same time. I'd have to agree. I mean, I, I really, uh, the, the, the methods and the ways in which um, my colleagues in this book, uh, the ways in which they studied the festival were so very, very different than Myself, sort of a, a lone textualist looking at it from a very different perspective, um, that at first glance it was surprising to collaborate in such a book. But then, having looked through the book, that's really the, the beauty of the book is that there's so many different approaches. Maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about how the book is organized and how the essays are. Yeah, so the with something like this, of course, that becomes an issue. You don't want to just throw in just a, a bunch of chapters that um, leaves the reader sort of meandering through a lot of different things. So uh, myself, uh, Moment to Saint, and Hilary Rodriguez, who were all co-editors on this project, decided to 
uh, group the essays um, thinking about the festival um, sort of as it's presented spatially. So we started off with the first section, which is Navratri in the Court, which is where both my essay and um, your essay, Raj, are, are in. It looks at the relationship, exactly like we've been talking about before, the relationship between the, the god and goddess and the king, and so how these uh, two things relate. And then we transitioned then to sort of public displays of Navratri, not necessarily in the court, but uh, sometimes by um, politicians, uh, which is Moma Tassane's essay, uh, other people in like the public displays that you would think of with, with Durga Puja. And then from that, we transitioned to uh, thinking about the symbolism of the, of the festival and thinking about I think the sections called the Vratri inside, the inner world, the spiritual world that is also encountered by devotees as they celebrate the festival. And then finally, we, we finish up with looking at the domestic side of Navratri, which I think is one of the um, most interesting sections because it's, you know, it's sort of the farthest away from my own research, but one that I could see uh, a, a very different world emerge in which uh, you move into the domestic sphere and see how much uh, women uh, Hindus, female Hindus, are actually you know, using their homes and turning a private space into a public space uh, and transforming the, the ritual in a bunch of uh, different ways. This is obviously a theme I'd, I'd like to hear more about and dig into. Um, I think it'll probably interest many of our, our listeners. Um, but maybe tell us a bit more about this last section of the book. I believe it's essays, um, chapters 12 through 15, uh, Navaratri at the Home, that reverses this idea of this being a, a public um, ritual. Can you tell us more about what you, your findings or the findings of our colleagues or what you found interesting about the section? Yeah, so I, I'll actually start with a, a little bit of an anecdote. Actually, just a few days ago, Astrid Zoter, who's at uh, University of Heidelberg, sent me a link of a review from the Indian edition of this book published by Aleph Books. Uh, and it was a really sort of different review that really focused on this last section. And the context of the review was about it through the hashtag MeToo movement. And so it was, uh, it was a very praising review, but one that focused on these last essays to talk about women's agency and in a way that um, I hadn't really thought about connecting it to the, the hashtag Me Too movement. Um, and so that's, it, it has a lot of power for helping people to, especially people in India, to think about the, the festival in different ways if they're not from some of these traditions. But the, um, yeah, this, this transition from something that we normally think of as a, as a private sphere within the domestic realm, within the home, which generally in those sort of like broad stereotypes of Hinduism becomes like the, the female sphere. Um, we find here that this really, this paradigm can get turned on its end. And so you have essays like uh, by Deepa Shivakumar, who talks about the, the public display in, in homes and how it's, the home is transformed into almost like a museum space in which people come in and view it as, as a gallery, comment on the house, uh, but it also gives this power to the domestic sphere by shaping it into a public area. So there's also all sorts of issues with um, socioeconomic status and performing middle class, which is what you see in Nicole Wilson's essay. And then, of course, you have um, Bridget Luchesi's essay, which is the, is the final one, in which she talks about uh, the Kanya Puja, the Puja to... Um, prepubescent girls that happens in the home and outside. So there you see sort of this, this mirror of 
domestic and uh, public. And then uh, my PhD advisor actually is also in that section, Vasudha Narayanan, and her essay really is the perfect bridge between the first section and the last because she talks about how in the medieval Vijayanagara Empire, the um, platform on which people would sit sort of representing the medieval kingdom and its hierarchy is actually reflected into the South Indian performance of the, the Kolu, where the dolls are all displayed. So you see how the domestic and the um, um, public, the public and the private, how these actually aren't so different, but they're actually reflecting one another. And the um, performance of the festival itself is actually quite similar in both, just takes different manifestations. Now, that's fascinating. Would you say it's overly simplistic or would you say it's apt to consider that um, this being a, a festival about the goddess, about the feminine divine, is, has direct bearing on the extent to which it can be a domestic, um, a domestic festival that's celebrated in the women's sphere? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a great question and one that, you know, I, I teach a course uh, here at U of A on uh, women, goddesses, and power. And actually, it's it's based on a course that I took with the um, the late Kathleen Erndl. And when you look at this question of of Shakti, uh, the divine feminine power, and how this relates from the goddess, who you know within the goddess tradition is you know the queen of the universe, all powerful, and that Shakti is what's invigorating, and how that connects to uh, women who are also feminine and have Shakti within them. And I, I'm always reminded of an, an essay that we use in my class uh, by Cynthia Hume, in which she is doing field work in um, the Vindhya Mountains at Vindhyavasini's temple, uh, and asks people about this connection between the Shakti of um, sort of human women uh, and the goddess. And, you know, it's, it's interesting the responses that she records there, because you would think, and most of the time, you know, I think, my students think, that there's a direct connection between the divine feminine and human feminine, but it seems to be an assumption that's not necessarily always shared within the tradition. So, I mean, that doesn't really answer your question, but I think it becomes a, a complicated thing to where some people, uh, by emphasizing the feminine side of it, can make those connections, while others see more about the divine uh, within the divine feminine and see it as a, a broader uh, lacuna between. Um, the goddess and and women on earth, but it definitely provides a space for um, theological hermeneutics in which you can really think about the connection between uh, the domestic as being again uh, again stereotypes, but a, a feminine sphere of influence and agency, uh, and then connecting it with the goddess. I think there's there's a lot of possibilities there for practitioners. Yeah, it's fascinating, and the reason I asked the question is because. I think that we, uh, most of us, um, myself included, would would assume from the outside that yes, well, of course, women can be empowered because this is a festival about a very powerful feminine figure that presides over the universe. And then we, at some point, have to come to terms with the notion that the goddess isn't a human in the way that, say, you know, Rama was an incarnation; he walked the earth as a human, and we draw parallels and how to behave because of this incarnation on earth, but one may not necessarily draw parallels on how to engage based on how the goddess engages or how she devises strategies to conquer the demons or what have you. And there's this, there is this 
there is this um, uh, bursting of the bubble at some point. The goddess is the goddess. She's not a human being. Right. And would you say that's reflected in the research or your, your findings? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, I still think there's, there's definitely that divide between, in the, in the essays and in the later portion of, of this volume, uh, where, you know, the, it becomes a complicated question. It's, it's difficult because, like, in um, Lucchesi's essay, in the, the prepubescent girls are being worshipped as the goddess. So at that moment, they are both human and the goddess at the same time. So in that instance, of course, it's um, directly relatable. Uh, but then you transition to someone like um, Wilson's essay in which looking at sort of the performance of the festival as a way to also enact uh, social mobility, then you don't see it as much, even though you do see references there to like the, the goddess and femininity. So it's, I mean, I think it's an ever-present um, idea, right? That the, the, the goddess is a, is a woman, um, is, is feminine, but they're, it oscillates between the nearness and the, the farness of how that relates to uh, human women. Hmm. Very, very interesting theme. Would you be able to comment? I realize this is a different sort of book and that it's a collective volume. And you're not obviously a single author, so you're looking at, and I think you're doing a brilliant job of tying in all these various voices. Um, but if you could take a 30,000 foot view of the book, and we've talked about this tension between domestic women and uh, the feminine goddess. Could you say a little bit more about the overarching themes um, or insights or intrigues that 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 this uh, the nine nights present to the reader? Yeah, so the the overall bridging all of them. I think that again the the goal of the essay was to really get a, a breadth of the festival in which people could who weren't familiar with the with the tradition could really see that it it's all over India. It's ubiquitous within South Asia. Yet it can be radically different from from one to the next. Uh, but the things that bridge them all are certain themes about, of course, there's the goddess, uh, but there's certain themes about space and movement. Because in each of the essays, uh, there's always this re relationship between um, between people and how people move from one element to the next with transitioning identities of space. Uh, whenever you go from being something that is um, like I'll just talk about my essay. Um, it's about the court of the the warrior kings in Mysore, in which you know, at this moment, it's a, it's a public space. People are invited to the darbar as a celebration, but as part of the celebration of the festival, the space transitions and the king goes into his uh, living quarters, and so then it's also celebrated in a very domestic uh, context. And in fact, uh, in the text that I don't talk about in in this book, but actually in my essay for the, the sequel to it that's um, being edited by uh, Uta Huskin, Vasudha Narayan, and Astrid Zoter, Nine Nights of Power, uh, about how people anticipate this movement of the king. And so it's Nine Nights of the Goddess is about, of course, performance of this festival, but it's also a way in which space is being defined through ritual performance. And so I think that is one of the overarching elements is that in performance of this religious ritual, people are defining themselves, their own identity, and the spaces around them. And these identities shift constantly. Fascinating. Now that you have, now that you have made mention of it, tell us about this sequel. 
yeah, we're we're quite excited about it. Uh, the the manuscript has been submitted to um, SUNY Press, so the same press that this book came out with, and I believe it's currently under review. And um, it's it's pretty much a follow up by the same working group, Navratri working group that was organized by Uta Huskin, uh, first at University of Oslo, now at Heidelberg University, um, in which we're coming back now and looking specifically at. Uh, material culture, visual culture, and how um, some of the same themes that we brought up are enacted in a way that's um, empowering to different people. So how human actors derive power from the celebration of this, of this ritual. So would that be more the point of, say, the review you mentioned earlier, um, relating uh, this to the Me Too movement, for example? Yeah, I, I think that there's possibilities. Again, I'm, I'm not editing this one, so I've only seen my essay and heard a few presentations about them. Uh, but for mine, for instance, I'm actually, instead of talking about uh, the colonial kingdom, uh, I'm actually extending it forward to the contemporary celebration of Dasara and Mysore and how po- politicians engage in uh, the process of, of Dasara and how this is a, a moment for them to uh, display power, display hierarchy. And showing these connections between uh, my primary research in the colonial period and how a lot of the same enactments of power and sovereignty now have been co-opted by elected politicians, which then complicates the idea of you know secular democracy and uh, elected politicians because often they're making a lot of the same claims that uh, someone like um, uh, Krishna Raja Woodier the Third had made in the. 19th century. So then, I have a question, but uh, before the question, maybe just very briefly explain for our audience what Dasara is. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, this is an, another great thing about this book is it's called the Nine Nights of the Goddess, referring to uh, directly to the name of the festival, the Navratri festival, which is just the, the nine nights. But oftentimes, the largest celebration of the festival is not actually on uh, during the nine nights, it's the tenth day. And so the tenth day has been called a lot of different things. The Jayadashami, uh, just Dashami, both referring to the Jayadashami, the, the tenth day of victory. And then in Mysore in Kannada, this becomes called Dasara. So the, the tenth day is when there's the largest celebration uh, typically in Mysore. And now in temporary Mysore, it's a huge parade. Lots of people come and attend from all over the world. Uh, they have performances uh, all leading into this this large elephant procession uh, to this bunny month of homes where they have uh, kind of like a show with like motorcycles and fireworks and planes and things. So actually it winds up being a very huge show of Indian patriotism and uh, Karnataka patriotism at the same time. But this so, tenth day is the is the really big day for the celebration. So huge celebration on the tenth day of victory very much related to um, the establishment, uh, the consecration of sovereignty, kingship, leadership, governance. Um, that theme goes way back from this, um, this uh, 1,500-year-old myth that, that I take a look at in the first chapter where the, the goddess's role on a cosmic scale is to protect the throne of heaven. And so unsurprisingly, um, her festival... Um, is harnessed invoke her for the sake of protecting, establishing um, sovereignty, kingship, leadership, governance on Earth. Now, with that backdrop, 
still it's fascinating to me uh, that we have elected secular leaders that are somehow participating in this um, in this ritual and this festival in this um, sacred sphere and and yeah I'm sure you have tons to say but but maybe you can comment on that comment on that tension of well is this is there a sacred secular divide being you know being 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 played with here or what's happening in terms of modern politicians in this festival yeah, so I, I mean, this, my thoughts on this all started whenever I was at the um, Dasara celebration. I guess this was in 2013 because it was before uh, the, the un, very untimely and, and unfortunate death of uh, the last uh, Maharaja of Mysore, uh, Sri Kantadatta Narasimha Raja uh, Whittier. And so he, this was his last one, but I, I remember I was seated not very far away from him, and he had been, you know, performing his duties as the Maharaja the entire nine nights then when it came time for the actual dasara parade the one that's performed in front of literally thousands of people and he was just seated in sort of normal western wear with a with a baseball cap on and was looking i mean for be- lack of a better word kind of grumpy and so i didn't really know what to expect what was going to happen but then when it came time to where the the big culmination of of this parade is that the an elephant with this large golden halda palanquin on its back with the goddess on it comes forward. And so from my textual studies of the colonial period and from looking at imagery of, of this, uh, this is where the king would go up and do puja as has been the case in you know all of the Puranas. It's just the way that it's performed. The king does this. Um, he remains seated. And instead, the uh, chief minister of Karnataka and the mayor of Mysore ascended up onto a, a platform and performed the puja. And so of course, immediately, this change in uh, sovereignty, right? It was, I could literally see the performance of his sovereignty at that moment, even though he had been holding the darbars, being proclaimed Maharaja every night in, in his public darbar. He's now seated, and the new sovereigns have, have taken the stage. And not only have they taken the stage, but they, they, they do a puja. They perform the puja. Uh, which then complicates, of course, this is always complicated, but the relationship between secular democracy and, and religion. And so that got me thinking about, you know, what does it mean to, to be elected? And in my, in my own research for my first monograph, this is what I've been looking at is um, in the colonial period, how people are, um, how they claim sovereignty, how they articulate it. And one of the modes is through this idea of election, uh, but generally what we might call divine election, either being born into a lineage or having the favor of the god or goddess. And then thinking about how does this transition in the context of India from divine election to popular election. And then in in this essay for the the second volume that's coming out, I just sort of played around with those thoughts about um, how performing this ritual actually is performing a shift in sovereignty from something that would be you know, divinely elected to popularly elected uh, and where we can see the convergences between the textual descriptions of colonial Mysore and what I observed in 2013 in Mysore. It seems to me, this is obviously quite fascinating, it seems to me um, that the, the lines, the, the distinction between sacred and profane to use, you know, really uh, somewhat dated religious studies terms, but but you know the the lines between the sacred and the profane 
that we perceive in um, modern Western society, they seem fairly blurred in the Indian context in the sense that while one may think that having an elected uh, official perform the ritual renders the sacrality of the ritual profane, it seems that the inverse could be argued in that this, this secular office nevertheless needs to be sanctified by the Devi, sanctified by the goddess. The goddess needs to protect um, governance, whether that's coming from the Maharaja or whether that's coming from the elected official. I mean, would you agree with this? Or uh, do, you, do you get a sense that the, the, that the, the crowd is, that this is perfectly acceptable and normal, that, that the, the, this, this, this now secular office needs to be divinized? Or do you find that there, there's a disjunction in that? Um, the secular has invaded the realm of the sacred. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an interesting question and one that um, I don't think is lost on the Indian population uh, because actually right after this performance, I remember reading, and I don't know, you know, I'm assuming this happens every time, but unfortunately I'm not usually able to be in Mysore for Dasara. But I remember in an op-ed in one of the, the local Mysore papers uh, that sort of reflected on what would happen if the mayor of Mysore or the chief minister of Karnataka was Muslim. Would they be expected to uh, perform the the puja also? Uh, so I mean, they, there's an understanding that there is this is clearly an act, enactment of Hindu identity within the election. But I think more broadly, I I don't know if it's necessarily um, more so in India, but I think this is a, a, a tendency for a lot of people to to look back to older modes of um, articulating sovereignty and election. Because I mean, not very long ago, and I don't remember who it was, but I remember reading a, a news um, article or a headline about um, someone saying that um, you know God had chosen Donald Trump to be the, the the president of the United States, and that's why he was elected. So it actually, to me, just sort of that is the very same thing that I was discussing in this. That you know this idea of popular election and divine election, there's still uh, within a lot of uh, people's mind, they're still completely intertwined. That power is and sovereignty is something that comes from higher power and it can just be bestowed on someone so i think that it's it's still uh, a complicated relationship that we we find between these there certainly is even in modern times even when um irrespective of um, one's political stance even in modern times for example uh, witnessing the state of the union address or irrespective of our views and what we agree with or disagree with there definitely is a sort of reverence uh, and a sense of sacrality around the office of the presidency. You know, um, maybe the lines between the sacred and the profane aren't as blurred in <laughs> in even the American context as um, we'd like to think, but it becomes much more exasperated, or, or at least um, visible in the Indian context, where um, where the elected officials are literally performing a Hindu ritual. In grand um, royal style on, on the tenth day after the Nine Nights Festival, so that's that's deeply fascinating. Um, well, I want to ask uh, more about this monograph that you are that you already mentioned. Maybe I'll, I'll save that till the end. But maybe one final question is, um, and I don't want it to be too much of a leading question. I want you to share sort of maybe what what kind of surprised you or where this project took you or, or what you took away from it. That, that, that intrigued you. And I imagine it must have been quite the journey and quite the learning experience for you. And you probably learned a lot and even just by editing 
our colleagues' uh, work. I'm, I certainly learned tremendously just reading uh, what they had worked on. So maybe if you can comment for our listeners about, you know, what you took away from the project or what really surprised you or intrigued you. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I learned a lot from it. I mean, that's the, the biggest takeaway because I, um, you know, especially as you go through uh, doing the research for your PhD, you get very much in a silo of your of your own thoughts and people who are working working on a very narrow um, topic, just as as yourself. And I really was focused on Southern Karnataka. You know, anything north of the Vindhyas to me was like a completely universe away. And then I started working on this not long after um, I had gotten uh, finished with my research for my PhD. And I was just sort of amazed by all the different regions that people were, were discussing and the different ways that they were discussing it. So, I mean, it just like you go from things like uh, reading Huskin's um, um, work on Tamil Nadu and this temple practice, which then ties back to Vijayanagara. And then you uh, transition to someone like Zinya Zeilers uh, looking at uh, Facebook groups and how they do Durga Puja. So I also, I mean, even though I knew about Navratri being celebrated everywhere, the diversity of ways that it's celebrated uh, and how technology has changed uh, the celebration from the medieval period within the medieval period. And then new things like WhatsApp and Facebook, how they're continuing to make the change. It just really impressed upon me, uh, really the need for a book like this because um, it's really easy to read like the Kalika Purana and say, "Oh, this is how uh, Navratri is supposed to be celebrated." And then you you pick up this book and you realize that you know people are are in large WhatsApp groups and sharing images of their Durga Puja from uh, Calcutta to Mumbai, um, or you have people um, going to see. Uh, a Baba in Delhi uh, who's giving spiritual discourses. There's just such a variety of the ways that people engage with this festival uh, that I I never knew personally, and I was delighted to be able to be involved in editing the volume and really getting to get in deep uh, with with all of this and and just um, really being able to appreciate the the varieties of the nine nights of the goddess. Yeah, the, the the power of this festival it's so incredibly mind-bogglingly pervasive and pan-indic and at first glance one is like well how can anything be so pervasively pan-indic when you take a closer look it's it's so variegated in its manifestations mm-hmm. that that it fits into really every crevice every state every every milieu whether that's social media whether that's a ritual sphere whether that's a political sphere and so um I think um, I'll take myself out of the equation for a minute, but looking at my colleagues' work and the job that you guys have done, uh, it seems to be in a really a really a gift to modern scholarship. It's really illuminating on the potency and the variety of this very important uh, Hindu festival. So, um, thank you very much for your efforts. Um, oh, bringing it was my this, pleasure. <laughs> bringing this, you know, and unearthing this or putting this together. Um, now we've taken enough of your time for one day on this Friday afternoon, and I'm sure you have um, many things to wrap up. Uh, so why don't you just tell our listeners what's next, what you're working on now? Yeah, so I, um, luckily I just had a manuscript, uh, accepted for publication with Oxford university press that ought to come out sometime 
hopefully in the in the fall. Uh, and the title of that is Devotional Sovereignty, Kingship and Religion uh, in India, 1782 to 1868. Um, and so in this book, I again, it's back to a lot of the themes that I've, I've already been discussing, but it's looking at two different kings uh, during the sort of burgeoning British presence in southern Karnataka, the first being Tipu Sultan, who was a uh, Muslim king, and the next being uh, Krishna Raja the III, who is a Hindu king. And looking at the beginning of sort of the British incursion into Mysore, with Tipu Sultan being um, very successful uh, militaristically in holding them off, and looking at all the products of his court in which he um, articulates his sovereignty and how his sovereignty is, has been authorized. And so he, you know, you find things about him being a great warrior, uh, God choosing him because he's the best of, of all the, the, the possible rulers, and then how this slowly transitions as uh, he starts to lose battles and then eventually um, loses power, has to sign a, a pretty awful treaty in 1792 and then eventually uh, his death in 1799 and sort of how the it changes about articulations of, of sovereignty so spe- specifically as he loses uh, military and administrative power how he turns to um, what I call religious vocabulary uh, talking about uh, his direct connection to uh, the uh, lineage going back to the prophet Muhammad how he t- talks about his devotion to um, Sufi peers uh, to uh, Hindu gurus, uh, how he enacts this devotion, and then on into the the Hindu period where the British are uh, administering Mysore, uh, how this sort of rhetoric is even amplified even further by connecting the Hindu king to a descendant of uh, Vishnu, tracing his lineage all the way down uh, by um, a great project of the court to express him as the ideal devotee by installing images of himself in temples and uh, commissioning paintings and lithographs of him performing puja and disseminating these uh, out across the the kingdom. And so I look at all of this to be able to sort of look at how articulations of sovereignty in India change as um, Indian kingship itself starts to unravel uh, and be subjugated underneath British colonialism. So it seems we end with how we started, which is talking about the goddess and the king. Um, it, we have been talking with Dr. Caleb Simmons, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Arizona, um, one of the three editors um, of this wonderful book, Nine Nights of the Goddess, the Navaratri Festival in South Asia uh, by SUNY Press. Caleb, it's been a delight talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. So we will sign off now. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. You can find out about my scholarly background at rajbalkran.com. And until next time, well. <laughs>